A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Climate change has been very much on the international agenda in the past week. World leaders met for the Climate Action Summit at the United Nations in New York. School students around the world are striking demanding action to curb greenhouse gas emissions. The World Meteorological Organization reported that the five-year period from 2014 to 2019 is the warmest on record. Sea level rise has accelerated significantly over the same period, it says, and CO2 emissions have hit new highs. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has released a special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. Cryosphere basically means ice. And, as we've reported on in our changing world many times over the past decade, the ice is melting. The Greenland ice sheet, the West and East Antarctic ice sheets, the glaciers in our southern Alps, all seem to be melting faster than we expected or hoped. Growing numbers and sizes of icebergs carving from glaciers and from ice shelves in both the Arctic and the Antarctic are one of the symptoms of this melt. So it's fitting that one of the calls to action ahead of the New York Climate Action Summit was an installation by New Zealand artist and photographer Joseph Michael. In Voices for the Future, Joseph projected virtual icebergs onto the United Nations buildings in Manhattan with a soundtrack of music and the voices of young people calling for change. I collaborated with Joseph on the award-winning podcast Voice of the Iceberg, which charted the expedition that Joseph and a team of filmmakers made to the Antarctic Peninsula to record the sights and sounds of icebergs. Tonight, to mark this growing focus on climate change, ice melt and rising sea levels, I'm going to replay the second episode of Voice of the Iceberg, Revelation. In episode one, Joseph and the team travelled from the southern tip of South America by yacht and encountered their first icebergs, discovering that each iceberg has a unique sound. In this episode, they begin to photograph and record the sounds of the bergs, which they give names to. You'll hear from photographer Joseph Michael, behind-the-scenes director Ryan McNeil, safety guide Nick Fluvier, sound recordist Mark Michel, a.k.a. Mitch, and skipper of the yacht Australis, Roger Wallace. Here's Joseph. This is a New Zealander. We're fairly aware of Antarctica. There's a lot of connections there, and we're, we're always hearing stories about it. But, you know, finding out how huge it is, a lot of people don't really understand how huge it is. I certainly didn't. It's nice and dead out there with the snow today. Oh, and it's much easier when it's still like this. Yesterday was a bit of a mission. Yeah. 
that's what's nice about this actually. See the little light dusting of snow we've got on it. Give it some beautiful highlights. I'm Mike Williams and I'm Physical Oceanographer at NIWA and also Director of the Deep South National Science Challenge. Antarctica has, has got all this ice because basically it's cold. So any rainfall or anything like that is always going to be snow. But what's important to understand about Antarctica is there's actually two types of ice. There's uh, sea ice, which is frozen seawater, and then we have uh, the continental ice. And that's where we get our icebergs from. So although we always evoke the image of icebergs being adrift in the, adrift in the sea, they, they're actually land ice that has come off the continent and is um, drifting out to sea. This is really interesting. I like this one, eh? Like even, even in through here, it's beautiful. And look at the lines, it's like um, dripping paint. Big bird, big bird. Big bird, right, right, big bird. There are different kinds of icebergs. Um, some we describe by their shape. So, for example, we talk about um, tabular icebergs, um, which are the sort of the big flat square ones. And then we also um, define icebergs by their names, and there's some great names. For example, very small ones we talk about as um, bergy bits, um, but then once we get to the larger ones, they're kind of, the names are a bit less exciting. It's kind of small, medium, large, extra large. Brash ice, just the really small ones, all this really small broken up stuff. Yeah, once they get as big as, big as the boat sort of thing, you've got to call them icebergs in. Icebergs, <laughs> okay. Yeah. By the time, yeah, big growlers, you don't want to hit big growlers at speed. You can damage the prop or dent the hull or knock your paintwork around. Brash ice doesn't do much harm at all. Any of this any of this ice is really too big and too hard to hit at speed. You, you can sort of bump into it a bit of glancing blow, but, but once the bergs get too big you don't want to get your rigging caught up in them or yeah. um, and then you've got to think uh, if your propeller and rudder. Every iceberg is it's different, it's like the flames of a fire, it's just all different, just continually different. Yeah. You just wonder how there can be so many different shapes. As scientists, when we try and study icebergs or, or try and incorporate them into, into our models and, and things like that, is we have to start treating them as cubes with, with rules, um, which really doesn't capture their, their individual nature. Icebergs, um, icebergs have been carved by nature over time, um, by the little processes where little things have melted, where, where individual waves have, have eroded icebergs, um, where they've rolled, where they've collided. Um, they're, they're a bit like people who have a life story, they, uh, and, and it's their life story that has is, that is shaped how they are when we see them. I can't fit it in any of my lenses. I need to go wider. I guess the easiest way to explain scale and size would be to liken them to large buildings. <laughs> you know, we are looking at pieces of ice which, above the water, uh, look like a fairly large three-storey building, and uh, realising that below the surface there, there's even more under there. There's, there's this immense piece of ice deep down under the water below the boat as well quite a sense of scale make you feel pretty small. Awful choice. 
we'll go around this and then we might pull up alongside and just send Nick up the crow's nest just to see, because we might come back with the drone. I grabbed a hold of the fleet of GoPros and ended up being the guy that would climb the mast and fix cameras around the place. And I really spent a lot of time up the mast. If we were photographing or um, surface mapping the, the bigger icebergs, I would be up the mast. I loved being able to see into the water. I really, really remember that. Um, I, I could see the ice below the surface. And at times when we're motoring around, a big iceberg with a soaring wall much higher than the mast. If I looked down into the water, I could see that there's, you know, reefs of ice below the boat that we're motoring over. You know, there's this immense amount of ice below the surface that, that we just couldn't see from on deck. We talk about the tip of the iceberg and and the reason for that story is that we know around about a seventh to a tenth of the iceberg is all that's visible above the water uh, and the rest is sitting down below the water and and that comes just from the, the different density that ice has to water so if we've got lots of ice and snow then the, then the iceberg will sit a bit higher in the water but if it's pure ice it'll sit lower and what that means of course is as the iceberg gets smaller its top sits lower and lower and lower um, so we're able to make some really good estimates about how much of an iceberg is underwater just by looking at the, the shape of what we can see above water. So we visualise the, the big ones um, as being tens of metres tall um, or hundreds of kilometres long, but icebergs can be any size down to a couple of metres um, floating in the ocean with their heads just above the water. Yoko was a very small bird. It's only, um, you know, two, two and a half metres wide, very delicate. And it was just a peculiar looking thing. It was unusual and it was something that we hadn't seen before. And that was what I was looking for. I was looking for different shapes and different surfaces and also different looking icebergs. So it wasn't a clear iceberg, but it was a very blue looking colour. And it it had an unusual look to it. It was had very thin ice flakes on it. And as we got closer, I mean, we were we were probably still 10 metres or so away from it. Over the, the sound of the engine, I could hear the, this popping and cracking coming from it. And so I think before I even photographed it, I sent Mitch in with the hydrophone to capture what the hell was going on. I remember Yoko, Mark and I uh, went out in the tender together and Yoko was relatively small with beautiful sculptured, um, quite quite a melted iceberg, so very good glassy ice. The light refracting through that was quite something. But that was all about sound when we went out with Mark. It was bubbling and fizzing away it kind of sounded like that magic gum you have as a kid or or like bacon and eggs and there's these tiny little flakes of ice that are sort of cracking and breaking um, it was yeah it was amazing it's fantastic 
Yoko was um, an angry little thing, um, incredibly boisterous. Um, it was quite small, but um, quite a dense ice, so quite an, an older um, ice in its um, in its makeup. And it was fizzing and crackling and spitting, um, almost like it was on fire. It had this um, this this kind of this um, ember burning uh, sonic to it. Um, and it was incredible that something so small could be emanating such an incredibly loud and, and boisterous sonic. So I started um, just cruising around Yoko with um, the stereo mics, um, using uh, mono mic as well so that I could try and target some of the real particular sounds that were happening within it. And also started using the hydrophone at this point around the, um, the icebergs. I think this is the first iceberg that I used the hydrophone. And again, that was producing a lot of really loud pops and, and fizzes. Because of that whole compression process, when it when the snow was turned into ice, as it gets squeezed, then all the air that was trapped inside the ice or inside the snow and the ice um, is all compressed, and the gases squeeze down into bubbles at, at really high pressure. A little bit like if it's in a dive tank or a, or a um, CO2 cylinder in a soda stream. So then, when we um, pop that piece of ice in water and it starts melting and the gas just starts bubbling out of that and generates a little bit of fizz in the ice. It was quite something here in that popping, crackling. It was constant, constantly cracking and popping. And Yoko was the only one that seemed to do... She just did that. Uh, the other icebergs, depending on where you went around them, you would hear different sounds. Sometimes you drop the hydrophone in the water and you might hear cracking and popping. Other icebergs, the, the deep booming sounds that you'd capture. I, I, uh, I was amazed at the, all the frequencies we were hearing, deep, deep, deep booming sounds right up to really high tribute crackling and pops. They're alive. They're constantly changing. Everything's moving, sort of impermanent, I guess. So once it's drifting around the ocean, the the two things that are going to control where it goes are the wind and the the ocean currents, and and they act to steer the the iceberg. But at the same time, what's also happening is the bottom is melting. Um, It's it's now exposed to much warmer water underneath, and so the bottom is slowly away and that starts to make it nice and round and smooth and we also we have waves hitting the side of the iceberg and the waves start um, carving away at the side of the ice the iceberg so it starts to become unstable as uh, as it melts in different places and erodes in different places so it will potentially roll or big pieces will come off it um, or it will carve many icebergs off the side of it so it becomes a very dynamic beast that changes its shape um, and its orientation as it, as it goes through its journey, which could be, um, in some cases, decades, because if they don't escape from Antarctica, they still stay in relatively cold water so they can survive for a long time.
From early on, I, I wanted to find some way of representing scale. In a lot of my landscape photographs, it's very hard to figure out exactly how, how big the landscape is. You know, it's, it's very easy if you put a boat or if you put something in the frame, but I like to keep, especially my photography, I, I like to keep the landscape as pure as possible. So there was just an, an answer that, to that question is how I would represent um, Antarctica and, and, and icebergs in a way that um, doesn't involve putting a, a human object in there. That sort of developed into the scale as, as all the buildings that we're, we're surrounded by around the city um, you know, are quite rep representative of, of what icebergs look and feel like. And so it just seemed logical to take an iceberg and wrap a building. I knew I wanted to map these icebergs, but I didn't entirely know the, the correct procedure for that, or how I would do it, or how it would become useful in post, or because they're, they're not definite sh shapes, they're kind of circles and um, they have many sides to them. So Roger's going to take us on a bit of a ticky to around, because he reckons there's some really spectacular ones over the other side, and then, then we can go and get a feel, come back tonight, and then work out a couple to sort of map, and maybe on the way out. When we first went out, we went out in the Zodiac and, and we were circling around in the Zodiac and then we worked out that that wasn't going to be appropriate for, for mapping the bergs. Then we had to call in the big guns and, and we actually, you know, we circumnavigated the, the icebergs with the, with the big yacht. So my name is um, Thomas Helita and I'm an actual cinematographer or photographer. So I was sort of a visual Swiss army knife in a way. We would ask the captain of the boat to to sail around it, to rotate around it, and I would basically be on deck Make a slow turn there. and try to capture as many photos yeah, that's good. of the side of the iceberg, of the, the actual cliffs, as the boat was moving. We would literally travel from one iceberg and then we would loop around it a couple of times. If you could just uh, pop it in neutral just as we cruise onto this corner, Roger, it'd be good. He'd detect the iceberg on the radar and depending on how far I wanted to be away, say if I wanted to be 10 or 20 metres away, he would just set it on the radar and keep that radius from the iceberg as we travelled round. Yeah, we'll just loop right around it again, Roger. Um, next up high, he just wants to get a glimpse into the inside just to see... The path that the boat takes, there's a GPS map of it and that people can research that on the internet. And so back home... Roger was getting emails from people wondering why we were doing all these circly, loopy, weird um, trips in the boat because we were circling round and round icebergs and it looked really strange that they hadn't seen that before. There we go. There was a number of um, things that I wanted to capture. So um, I, I was mapping, photographically mapping the icebergs. So I had Thomas was... Um, helping me with the, the assistance of mapping the icebergs. I would operate one camera on a wider lens and Thomas would be on a tighter lens capturing um, photographic panels. So we had huge re resolution plates of the icebergs. And then later on in the, pro the post-production process, we would actually ask the software to stitch, to put all the photos together. A good metaphor is an orange skin. So you imagine how the iceberg is an orange and you can just imagine peeling off um, the skin of the orange and put it flat, and then we would project this, wrap this in a way around the building when we got back in Auckland. 
So the aim was to to find, you know, at least at least ten icebergs that we could photographically map. Um, and the the other thing that was was essential was to to and difficult, obviously, is to capture um, ice crashing and carving off the side of the icebergs and glaciers, so we can then um, use that as part of the installation. Well, so if there's an archway in a building, we'll, we'll probably use that and try and with uh, Valentine's Day, fourteen February. It was close to um, a rock outcrop, so we could film the iceberg from it, and it had this huge, huge archway that looked like it was about to collapse. Oh, this piece in the middle of the archway looks like it's just ready to drop. So the rest of the team spent a whole day sitting in front of Valentine to, um, to capture this ginormous archway. Yeah, I've got a, there's a pre-record function on the camera, which I'll enable, which means I can just wait for the moment that the, the ice falls, hit the button, and it will record the previous 20, 30 seconds. So it's a good little feature, which hopefully means we can grab it, but it's about hitting this because it's pretty unpredictable. Part of it carved off during the day. We were sitting there, and we spent a good 10 hours or more, I think, all day and right up into the evening. Of course it's not dark until 10 or 11 and um, we got some, some fabulous footage and I got some great audio. And we were just waiting, we knew that this archway was going to move at some point. Valentine, I got up about 5am and the light was really nice, some mornings you'd just get a little tickle of sunrise, so I, I grabbed my camera while the other guys were getting the rest of the camera gear ready and I went out on the Zodiac and went round and filmed it and Mitch jumped in with me. She's got a big crack and that crack is starting to get bigger so a reasonable amount's going to carve off it and I'm sitting here ready with my audio gear um, and it's going to go in the next couple few hours we think. So I dropped him off on a, on a rock and I went round and I took a series of photographs and then I went back to the boat to get the other guys and um, we were getting all the cameras and they were preparing for a whole, you know, another 16 hours in front of this iceberg. I sat there by myself while the crew were, um, while the team were getting ready to, to get all the equipment set up, probably about 50 metres away sitting on a rock and I had uh, a couple of microphones set up, the stereo mic set up and surround as well as the um, surround sound microphone and it started really moving, and I realised that it probably wasn't too far away. There were large slabs that were breaking off from the top of the archway, and there were um, parts that were starting to carve off. So I was there on my Todd, and uh, really hoping that the crew would get back so that they could witness it visually. And then she went. It was um, yeah, pretty awe-inspiring and um, a little bit nerve-wracking because when the whole thing completely collapsed, it sent out a massive shower of large 
chunks of ice. So in the recording itself, you can actually hear it collapse over a period of time, its final collapse, and then a whole range of uh, baseball, softball-sized pieces of ice um, spraying all around me, at which point I was diving for cover and just making sure that the microphone was still working, hoping not to get hit. As we were loading the gear back into the boat, I looked over and you could see it, you know, off in the distance, and something looked different about the horizon. And um, what had happened is the whole archway had collapsed. So when we we turned up, Mitch had recorded the whole thing, and, and he witnessed the whole archway collapsing. But we we sort of arrived to this destruction, and what happens when an iceberg breaks apart? is you get this brash ice in, in the water and it, it sort of splinters. It's reminiscent of coming into a cyclone or a, an earthquake and as you come close to the iceberg, you, you're greeted with this wall of ice cubes. We call it brash ice. So it breaks apart and it spreads out into the water. And so before you can even get to the iceberg, you can sort of discover this. And So then we, the site, we were sort of wading our way through the carnage to get close to it. So the one that got away for the team, um, so I feel incredibly privileged that I was able to um, to witness it myself and to be able to record it. And uh, yeah, quite a quite a lovely thing to um, to have all on my own, I suppose. Um, even though the, the the rest of the team didn't get to experience it. That was episode two of the Voice of the Iceberg podcast from a couple of years ago. There are four episodes and you can find all of them at rnz.co.nz or wherever you listen to podcasts. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. He hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time for a dose of chemistry with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and the Elemental Podcast, in which we are celebrating 150 years of the periodic table with a look at every chemical element from the most interesting to the most boring. So where will tonight's element fall on that spectrum? Let's find out from Alan. We have got protactinium, and this comes from the Greek protos meaning first, and actinium, um, after actinium, the element, it actually forms actinium when it undergoes nuclear decay. So as we alluded to last time on the podcast about the insights we are gaining into the classical languages, so <laughs> there's our bit of Greek for the week, but otherwise I'd say this falls into the category of the third or so of elements on the table named for a chemical property. <laughs> okay, enough procrastinating and passing the time. Should I be on the edge of my seat for this episode, <laughs> Alan? Well, as as much of any of them, I, I really couldn't possibly say, and I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. Okay, how would you sum protactinian up, apart from the fact that it's got a very nice-sounding name? It does. Rolls off the tongue nicely. Protactinium, I would say, is a very rare radioactive element, which is one of the ten least abundant elements in the Earth's crust. So, elemental symbol PA and atomic number 91. We go back to good old Mendeleev, and he predicted the existence of protactinium 
but it took at least another 40 years before it was first identified and isolated. By the way, how many elements did Mendeleev actually predict? It was actually four when he gave a predictive name to when he published his periodic table in 1869. So that was the first version of that. And uh, he added a prediction for what later became known as protactinium in 1871. Its discovery date is given as 1913, and that's the date that the isotope 234 protactinium was discovered. And it was very briefly, appropriately, I guess, named brevium from the Latin word brevis, meaning brief. Oh, there's our Latin for the week. (laughs) But it wasn't until 1917 that Lisa Meitner of Meitnerium fame, and we've already talked about her, isolated a quantity of protactinium-231, and that's a long-lived isotope of the element with a half-life of around about 32,000 years. And she called it protoactinium. She described it as being the mother substance of actinium. And it was known as that until 1949 when they shortened protoactinium to protactinium. Because it sounded better, eh? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, indeed. So it was, yeah, it was an element that not a lot was known about until the 1960s. And in fact, uh, in the 1950s, one of the quotations about uh, protactinium was that it was talked about in terms of, quote, mystery and witchcraft. So what happened in the 60s? Well, around about 100 or so grams of the element was isolated from uranium refining residues, and that 100 grams is still being used to this day. Now, I hate to say it, but there's really not much to say about protactinium. We've got the isotope protactinium-233, and that decays to uranium-233, and that is a rare example of a fissionable isotope. And so that could therefore be used in nuclear weapons. Can I just interrupt? So it can decay from uranium, but it can also decay to uranium? (laughs) Yes, indeed. So it it depends on which isotope you're talking about. So the lighter ones can decay to actinium isotopes, and the heavier ones can decay to uranium isotopes. I guess the important point about all of this is that there is a bit of concern about nuclear reactors that are powered by thorium. And these were of great interest in sort of around about the 70s or so. Then they fell out of interest. And then recently, um, people have started looking at these again. And in fact, India has got the only such thorium-powered nuclear reactor currently operating. And the reason that there's concern about this is that in such reactors, the protactinium-233 isotope is made... And that could be obtained by uh, reprocessing the nuclear fuel, or in fact, as the reactor is operating, the uh, protactinium-233 is actively extracted because it acts as a so-called neutron poison. It slows the whole thing down. Either way, you don't really want baddies getting hold of this protactinium-233 simply because of the fact that it does then decay to the fissionable isotope of uranium, so that's not going to be good. Ooh, what else about protactinium? Well, you do also get protactinium-233 from the decay of americium-241. And recalling that episode, uh, we know that americium is used in smoke detectors, and so therefore we've probably all got a tiny amount of protactinium in our homes. And I hate to say it, but that's about it. Oh, sorry, I'm paying attention. I really am. (laughs) Um, This is quite possibly the dullest element we've done, really. Yes, but having said that, I'm sure that there is some chemist out there in the world that still loves it. Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology looking, as always, on the bright side of chemistry. 
And you can find all the episodes of Elemental posted on the Our Changing World webpage, which is, of course, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you're a podcast listener, you can also find Our Changing World, Elemental, Voice of the Iceberg, and, of course, the latest episode of The Kākāpō Files on most apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you'd like to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.